Hey everybody, I wanted to give you a quick heads up that today's episode of something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard is going to be a little different. Originally, we were planning to drop Armageddon 2005 yesterday. And then on Thursday, Bruce wanted to call an audible and felt it was most appropriate to honor his great friend, Pat Patterson. So we're dropping the show a day late and we're also moving Armageddon 2005, which was originally scheduled for yesterday to drop next week. We are going to have to also deliver a make good episode because we have a ton of ads to deliver. And I called an audible today and decided that we should air today's tribute without any commercials. So we need to apologize to those great sponsors who make this show possible. And I want to humbly ask you listeners to uh, please help us support those sponsors. When you hear that make good episode, uh, because we're, we're throwing a wrench in their plans today, but I just felt it was most appropriate for us to be as appropriate and respectful and present you this tribute from the heart of Bruce Pritchard, uh, without any sort of mind for business, because this was more than business. Uh, certainly the wrestling business lost one of its greatest minds and visionaries and performers, but Bruce lost one of his very best friends. We appreciate your support and, uh, look forward to bringing you a more traditional something to wrestle next week. Welcome. Do something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. Scared to shock him. Thank you, Bruce. Ah, Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, Connie, you know, uh, got a question for you. Shoot. Did you, um, know who was talking about you the other day? Um, I don't know. Uh, Charlotte, nobody was talking about you the other day. That's old Pat Patterson that he would get you with at least once or twice a month. Of course, today we're celebrating the life of Pat Patterson. Uh, we lost him tragically earlier this week and we're recording on Saturday, December 5th on the heels of a very special SmackDown that paid homage to Pat. And, um, 
I know NXT was, was technically the first WWE show after Pat's passing, but last night was your first wrestling show with the company without Pat Patterson on the earth here with us. And, uh, I know you guys were best of friends for so long. I mean, Jim Cornette jokes on his podcast that you guys were attached to the hip so much that it became one name. It was Bruce and Pat. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson. It was Bruce and Pat. And you know, these days, of course, he'd gotten a little older. He passed away earlier this week at the age of 79 and he was slowing down a little bit and he wasn't running as wide open as maybe the schedule you keep these days. And while that may have changed, uh, the love you guys shared for each other had not. And, uh, when I got the news and I called you, I could tell just by the way you answered the phone that you already knew pretty tough week this week. Yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah. Yeah. It sure as hell was. It was a little crazy. I got a call bright and early in the morning, whatever day that was. And just, you know, pretty much the facts type thing. But it was, uh, Shock, you know, it's shocking. You you can prepare for those things um, all that you want, but it, it's still when it hits you and the reality of it comes in that you, I don't know, I just, I, I pretty much sat in silence for the longest time. And you try to rationalize that you're dreaming and you try to rationalize it's not true. But, um, it was a fact, and, and we lost one of my best friends and mentors of, of my entire life. That um, for the last 33 years, it, it helped me so much, and just uh, unselfishly taught me and took the time with me, and 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 along the way, just we had a had a shitload of fun as well. So. It was, a uh, it was a little rough. Well, let's, um, let's mention right at the top that normally when we do a deep dive bio on a talent like this, we would come with, uh, a lot of facts and a lot of details about their whole life. And we're still going to do that someday on Pat Patterson. Uh, but that day won't be today. Today. We're just going to let Bruce tell some stories and sort of speak from the heart. Uh, I have 46 pages of notes ready to go on Pat Patterson when we do the full profile show. But I thought today uh, on the heels of, uh, all of this news being so fresh, maybe what would be best would be if we just sort of let you tell your story. So tell us about the first time you got to meet Pat Patterson. Well, the first time that I met Pat officially was in 1987, shortly after WrestleMania the uh, office in Houston, Paul Bosch's wrestling office, which was partially owned by Bill Watts in Mid-South at the time, 
we had Watts had sold his territory, the UWF, to um, Jim Crockett Promotions, and Paul Bosch didn't want to be any part of that. Paul didn't didn't like Jim Crockett, and I don't want to say he didn't like him. Didn't know Jim Crockett. Put it that way. Didn't know Jim Crockett, but knew enough about him that he knew he did not wish to do business with him. Paul was willing to open up and try, but his his phone calls and attempts to get a hold of Crockett went unanswered. So Paul called his old friend Jim Barnett. A meeting was arranged for Pat. Vince and Jim Barnett jump on a plane to come to Houston to meet with Paul. So that was the first time uh, on that day that I actually ever, you know, met Pat, shook his hand and, and got to talk to him for a few seconds. But, uh, you know, through the years, you hear an awful lot of things about people. I, I remember the first time that ever saw Pat and that was in, um, wasn't in Amarillo was in El Paso, Texas, seen him on TV and Pat did a character, Lord Patrick Patterson, because Pat's English wasn't good. So Pat would cut these promos from, uh, in a lawn chair and talk about, Hey, all you farmers out there in Texas. And he would, just do it through his thick French Canadian accent, trying to be British. And it was the drizzling fucking shits. But goddamn, man, when Pat got in the ring and turned it on, no one could touch his work. So I saw Pat first as a very, you know, young kid uh, watching wrestling, just being a fan of wrestling. Then he came and uh, I think he did one or two shots, maybe in Houston for Paul Bosch, uh, with Ray Stevens as his partner and holy shit, they were just, I don't know how to explain it because their work was just that good. You knew it. You knew it when you watched them, that this was something special, that these two guys were the best there was. Ray Stevens has been, uh, noted by Ric Flair as being his favorite wrestler growing up. And I think a lot of our younger listeners may not realize that before Pat Patterson was the first intercontinental champion from that prestigious tournament down in Rio de Janeiro, he was arguably one half of the greatest tag team of all time and not a ton of footage out there of that tag team, but folks who actually got to live it and see it said it was unlike anything else. And as with a lot of other things in wrestling, uh, it was probably a, a bit ahead of its time. I think Roy Shire, the promoter that I had so much affection for was critical of the style. They would work that they did maybe too many big moves, maybe work too fast, maybe had too many false finishes, but it was a, a, a breath of fresh air. By the way, we hear all that same stuff about tag teams these days too. It's just constantly evolving, but Pat was a big time innovator for tag team wrestling before he was intercontinental champ, right? Yeah. Pat was, you know, Pat made it in this business, um, by being, you know, being better, frankly, than, than everyone else's peers around him. And Patrick 
was able to to find his way. You know, he he started out as a kid. Pat wanted to be in the circus. And as a kid, he would study the circus and he he always wanted to be a trapeze artist and and walk the high wire and and shit like that. So that was Pat's dream as a child. When he was very young, <coughs> I, I think that uh, he started watching wrestling would hang around the, the old Montreal arena and the Maple Leaf Gardens at the time and tried to carry wrestlers' bags in, tried to do whatever it is he could to sneak in because it wasn't a really wealthy family by any stretch of the imagination. So Pat would do whatever he could to, to try and get in and watch the wrestling matches. And he fell in love. That was what that was what he wanted to do. Yeah, Bruce, when all this happened, uh, I went back and I watched Pat's Hall of Fame speech from when he went in the Hall of Fame. And man, he put over Killer Kowalski so huge. And I had no idea that that was somebody that, that Pat looked up to. And uh, he talked about, you know, being so excited to get his autograph. And even years later, all these years later, now when Pat himself was going in the Hall of Fame, he still had that photo that Walter had signed for him all those years before. That's pretty remarkable and shows you, you know, how deep his fandom went. I mean, he wanted to do this his whole life. Yeah. And the thing about it is, is that when you, you know, you look at it and you say his fandom, it was, it was his love and Pat really fell in love with wrestling and got fixated on wrestling much like he did the circus and would accept no substitute got on a bus, man, took all the money he had, which wasn't a lot. Uh, I think it was in the teens of dollars, like $16, something like that. And got on a bus from Montreal and landed in Boston, Massachusetts. So Pat did not speak English. Got 17 bucks, doesn't know a soul in Boston, finds a place to stay near where the promoter's office was, Tony Santos, and basically, you know, told Tony Santos he wanted to be a wrestler and then that he he wanted to to learn how to wrestle and he was gonna wrestle and so on and so forth. And as is the story with a lot of guys old timers that there was that one moment where you have an opportunity and you step into the ring and you, you never get out of the ring from that point going forward. And so Tony Santos gave him a break. Tony, um, let Pat wrestle one point didn't have enough guys from there. Pat got a, a little, a room, um, in, in someone's house or like in this apartment building, it was a weird deal. And Pat would tell stories about even as a young kid living in this, this apartment thing that was owned by an old man that used to sit down at the bottom of the steps to collect everybody's rent for the week and and how Pat would just torture this guy, dropping water balloons on him and, and whatever he could to to just laugh and, and have fun and, order, you know, order food to be delivered for the old man 
I didn't order this, and then Pat would eat it. Um, the old man would pay for it because, you know, back in those days, someone orders food, you gotta, somebody's got to pay for it. And it just, Pat, at a very early age, had a sense of humor that if Pat was going to do it, he was going to have fun with it, no matter what it was. Pat was going to have fun and loved to laugh and loved to, loved to laugh at a lot of times other people's misery, which is probably where I got that my sixth sense of humor. Talk to me a little bit about when you saw him wrestle, you know, you said you saw it on TV there in Texas. Did you see what era of, of wrestling would that have been? Like what year do you think that would have been? If you had to guess late sixties. Wow. Okay. Late, yeah. Late sixties, late sixties. And then when he came to Texas, it would have been in the very early seventies. He had a lot of different personas that he tried over the years. Some were bigger hits than others. When, when he came through. Uh, and you saw him in person in Houston. How would you describe his presentation? Oh, it was Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens is the greatest tag team that ever lived. Do you believe the the hype and all that we've heard about their tag team accolades? hundred percent. What made them Nobody so special? Can. You know, it was, they were a team, uh, much like they weren't two individual guys put together. They were a tag team that if you took one away from the other, it's going to sound weird, but if you took one away from the other, when they were Pat Patterson and Stevens, then you didn't, you didn't have the same thing. Both great individual talents in their own right. However, as a tag team, they worked as one and you didn't really, you really didn't have that a whole lot. Yeah, you had the Infernos, you had the Funks, but the Funks were two individuals. Uh, you had the Von Brauners and, and guys that were just tag team gimmicks, but I don't know if there was any tag team that worked as one as well as Patterson and Stevens that were also great, and I mean great, singles competitors as well. And a lot of that came out of the, the Royce Shire stuff, when Pat was brought in uh, to San Francisco, he was brought in to be Roy Shire's brother. Wow. I didn't know that. So, you know, Pat, Pat had gone from uh, Tony Santos in Boston where he met Mad Dog Vachon, and he knew Mad Dog from Montreal because Mad Dog was a big star there and gone to the Olympics and all this shit. Mad Dog befriended Pat, really liked Pat, and sent him a, a letter saying, you're, you're going to start for, I guess it was Don Owens, but he goes, you're going to start on such and such a date in Portland, Oregon. And Pat's like, okay, how do I get there? He's like, you fucking find your way. <laughs> you know what I mean? You drive your car, you take a plane, you take up whatever the hell it is, get your way there. And Pat didn't know where Portland, Oregon was. And he looked on the map, he saw Portland, Maine. He's like, okay, I could do that. But then Portland, Oregon was completely whole nother side of the world to Pat. And he was scared, didn't know how to get there. And he'd kind of set up shop in Boston. You know, he's like, ah, you know, maybe I'm good here. So Pat had given uh, Mad Dog his word that he would show up, and he didn't. And, and Mad Dog 
called him and said, hey, I fucking vouched for you. I gave you my word, or I gave the promoter my word that I got a kid. You asked me for help, and I'm helping you. Don't ever fuck me again. Get your ass out to fucking Oregon. So now Pat's like, oh, shit. Pat had, during this time, and I think Pat always knew that he was different. Pat always knew he wasn't like everybody else. And this was during the time that Pat was discovering that, that he was he was gay. And he met someone, Louis Dondero, uh, that, that became his life partner for the rest of his life. And Louis is like, hey, I've got a car. You know, I, I know what, what we can do. And I'll go out there with you. So Pat and Louie load up the car and they, you know, head to the North Pacific Northwest, man, and set up shop out there. And Pat, upon setting up shop out there, told no one about Louie. That was taboo, man. You, you, you know, in, in those times, what, where are we talking here? Probably early, early 60s, maybe late 50s. Um, that, you know, Pat's gay, Pat knows he's gay, Pat's got a significant other, and they're living together, but who the hell are you going to tell? And Pat kept that part of his life secret from the business. And he tells a great story about Mad Dog came into the chair, you know, came in. <laughs> I heard this one. And Mad Dog uh, heard about Louie. Who, by the way, had, had been with Pat for a while. But again, Pat, it, 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 it's so weird to think about that this was something you, you had to be secretive about. And I'm glad you don't anymore. But he had kept it from Mad Dog, who had gone out and vouched for him and gotten this big gig and sent him halfway around the world or so it felt to go to the other end of the United States. And Mad Dog comes into the territory. And here we go. And. So Mad Dog, you know, tells Pat, you know, he goes, are you a puffer? And Pat is like, no, no, no. He goes, you are a puffer. I guess puffer. Yeah, whatever. Another name. And so um, Pat finally was like, you know what? Fuck you. He goes, I want to meet this Louis. It got to a point, Pat told me this story once at a, at a Starcast, uh, where mad dog, or maybe it was, maybe it was, I think it was mad dog. He's so annoyed and he wants to catch him. Right. Yes. That he can try chases him all over the city in his car up on the curb. Like yeah. <laughs> I'm going to find him. It's amazing to me that we're trying to catch. I'm going to catch him with this guy. To the point where he's like circling the building that he knows that, that Pat lives in trying to get a glimpse. And when he thinks he might see him literally drives up on the curb, knocks over some tables and chairs. It's re remarkable. Yes. Cause my God, mad dog was going to find this Louie and, and Louie's running from him. They're scared to death of mad dog. He's crazy. Right. And finally Louie's like, fuck it. I mean, if he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. And Louie and Pat and Mad Dog sat down and had dinner. And 
you are all right for a poofer. <laughs> and they became the, the very, very best of friends. And Mad Dog told Pat, he goes, if you ever have any, anybody ever gives you any problem about Louie, you come to me. Isn't that remarkable that, you know, he had this preconceived notion and hated everything about it. And then actually gets to meet the individuals and realizes, oh, I was way wrong. This was, this was stupid. And we're best friends now. Well, you know, Conrad, I, I, and I've told this story before I, I had the same misconceptions. I, I had the same just fucked up ignorance in my head for so long that, you know, you know, when, when you don't understand something that is different than what you believe and what you do, you, you don't try to understand it. You're afraid of it for no good reason. And I think for me growing up in the South, um, and I don't know why that, that means anything, but I use that as an excuse an awful lot. Uh, things are different in the South that I, you know, a, a gay person. Oh my God. And if it's a gay man, you know what they want to do to you. Right. So silly. They, yeah. They, they just, you know, you, you had this belief and you had this notion in your head that every single gay person, every single gay man in the world, all they wanted to do was rape me and have sex with me. <laughs> you personally, do, how could they resist? Do bad things to my butt. And you know, I, but I, you know, even shit in my early twenties, that, that was, that was what I thought. That was, that was my, my mindset. How, and how stupid was all of this thinking, you know? You break it down, and that's one thing that I, I I love so much about my children is that other than they're great, is their acceptance and that they have just no preconceived, which I think is wonderful. And I know that you know, thank God, Pat Patterson, I kind of got to raise normal kids, but Louie would sit down and and talk to me and and Pat. I just, I gravitated to Pat because of Pat's love for the wrestling business when I came up. And then I remember, uh, Pat and Louie, we went to the mall one night and on the way back, uh, we went to a gay bar and the only way that they got me to go to the gay bar was because we had a girl with us. And I thought I've got a chance with the girl. Well, guess what? The girl was gay. Oh shit. She wanted nothing to do with me. And <laughs> so now we're in, we're in the gay bar and there's all these guys. And I literally stereotypical, man, I went, I got a beer and I went to the, to a wall so that I could put my back against the wall. Oh my God, Bruce. Well, look, I knew I was outnumbered. Oh my. And Louie comes down and he sits down and he says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm you know, just, just chilling out. He goes, why are you over here? So I, I don't know anybody, you know, I'm just over here. And he goes, Bruce, I don't think any of them want to fuck you. And if they did, <laughs> they'd probably try and buy you a drink first and have a conversation and just like everything else. And if you said, Hey, I'm not that way. I go, okay. I mean, do you think I want to fuck you? I was like, I mean, I'm sure you do, but, um, <laughs> my God, 
Oh, so I mean, Pat and Louie just helped me break down those just stupid fucking shit you had in your head and everything that in such such real simple terms that a lot of times when you're just closed minded, you, you don't want to hear. You you don't hear it. You can't you can't believe any of it. And uh, there's just people. So Pat going through early on. With Mad Dog Vashon, Mad Dog got it right away, fell in love with Louie, yep. and made sure that Pat knew and Louie knew nobody's going to fuck with you in this business over this. And if they do, they got to deal with Mad Dog. It's it's interesting that we're talking about this, because, and I'm glad we are, because, and, and you're sort of falling on your sword saying, boy, I had some, you know, out of whack thinking, and I was silly and stupid, and I learned, and I got better, and First of all, kudos to you for just being honest and being open because, you know, you're probably going to get a little bit of shit on social media for talking about this, but I think it's an important conversation to have because even, you know, in the wake of all this, there's some idiots, uh, online who've chirped about this or that and blah, blah, blah. But Tony Schiavone told a great story once on his podcast where he said that, uh, when he was with the company for that one year. Uh, he was traveling a lot, uh, a lot of times with Vince and Pat and Pat being Pat would make jokes sort of playing on that naivete that you sort of shared of yourself. And he knew how to just take that as a rib and, and make it a, 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 a joke, sort of like a fat guy makes a fat joke type of deal. And, um, I think a lot of people over the years could misconstrue or would misconstrue whether intentionally or accidentally that he was being serious, but it did become a big sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe a defense mechanism. I mean, Pat was always jovial and laughing and blah, 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 but he definitely enjoyed poking fun at his sexuality to make, to make guys uncomfortable and, and make a big rib and a big ha ha. And it was instances like you and Louie having that conversation about why are you sitting over here? Do you think I, it's sort of the same thing, right? Absolutely. But I, I don't even think that it was to make guys uncomfortable as much as it was to let them know that Pat was comfortable. Yeah. And that, hey, Hey, Hey man, you know, everything's cool. There, there's nothing here. It's like, I'm gay, but I, you know, who would want Tony Schiavone? Um, no, correct. And so anyway, the point was in that conversation with Tony, he says, Vince pulls him aside when they're at a rest stop or something and says, Hey, listen, Pat has a certain way of, of joking around, but I just want you to understand if that ever gets to a point where you're uncomfortable, let me know. And I'll, I'll make sure he stops. And Tony was sort of taken aback. He's like, I fucking know he's joking. Of course. But my point is, I don't think he was trying to, maybe I didn't convey it clearly. I want to try again. He wasn't trying to make guys uncomfortable. He was comfortable having an uncomfortable conversation that this is just, Hey man, no big deal. Let's not pretend that, you know, this is different. Let's not put on airs. This is who I really am. And now here come the jokes, just like we fuck with each other. And you called me a hillbilly and blah, blah, blah. And well, you are, well, and we know that you're a kiss ass and you got that Stanford chapstick and the whole deal, but that's just the way friends. I'm a good talk. kisser. I <laughs> You know that so, so many good jokes from there that Pat always told me I was, <laughs> I knew you were going there. I'm, I'm just glad that we're able to sort of talk about how good natured 
Pat was about and comfortable and wanted everyone else to be comfortable. That was the thing I was trying to drive home. He was like, Hey man, let's, let's not pretend. Uh, yeah, this is the case. And haha, let's have some laughs. Yeah. And, and that's what, you know, I think that that's Pat's whole life was all about was, you know, let's, let's have a good time. And, and I think that when Pat left Oregon, he went to Roy Shire's territory next, I believe. Um, I don't have his whole chronology. I know when, as we would talk for 33 years and just get his stories. But when Pat went to San Francisco, it was going to be as a, is Roy Shire's tag team partner, right? Bleach his hair. And, um, I guess he was going to be Pat Shire. Um, and here's the other thing that we always used to, used to love to fuck with him about was Pat's, uh, birth name was Pierre Clermont. And you know, for, I don't know, Pat Patterson sounds so normal. But then I, when I learned Pierre Clermont, I was like, God damn, that's a cool fucking name. You should have just been old Pierre Clermont. And he hated that name. I hate it. And Pat finally got his name changed. Uh, I don't know, about 20 years ago or something like that. Did I ever Pat tell Patterson. you my story about that? About changing your name to Conrad Thompson? No, he, that was because the law was after you. Even better. First star cast, I booked Pat Patterson as a surprise. We don't announce it till the very last minute. He's going to be there for the roast of Bruce Pritchard. I didn't feel like I could do it without Jerry and without Pat. So I talked to Pat, we get it all straight. He's so excited to be there. I book his airfare and, uh, he gets to the venue and immediately starts motherfucking me. Now, by the way, Pat and I have been friends for a little while at this point. There's a great story about French fries. I'm sure you want me to tell at some point. Uh, but he, uh, he just cuts a monster promo on me about how, you know, I, oh, you're some big promoter. Don't even know how to book my goddamn airfare. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, here's the thing. I fucking just Googled it and I booked his fucking airline ticket under his original birth name. And then it was a whole big hubbaloo at the, at, at the desk to get it changed. But I just assumed, you know, based on everything that I knew of, of wrestling, well, that's his gimmick name. I didn't know he had legally changed his name. So I had to rebook the return airfare. And it was funny. Cause when I said his real name to him, I, he started ribbing me. He's like, who the fuck is that? And it's just like, he had never heard of the name. And then eventually he's like, I haven't been that for 20 years. Can you change my return airfare to my name? That's because you probably got your information from the observer. Oh God. I didn't even wrong again, Connie. I didn't even. (laughs) (laughs) You want some French fries? I know you want the French fries. Look at you. Come on. And you want the, you want the vinegar on the French fry. You want the ketchup? Royal rumble 2017. I'd been hanging out with Pat for a few years at events. You know, of course, whatever he would see, uh, uh, Rick in the bar or me in the bar, he would come pull up a bar stool. Well, on this particular day, Rick's gone somewhere. He sees me, he comes, pulls up a chair, orders a drink. We start talking. What do you think's going to happen tomorrow? You know, blah, 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 all this type of stuff. And then he says, let's order some French fries. And I said, no, nah, I'm good. Just, uh, I'll, I'll get you some French fries. He's like, you don't want to split French fries. I'm like, no, nah, I don't really like French fries. 
he barely laughs and does the whole Pillsbury Doughboy thing on my on my fat roll and says, You don't like French fries and just fucking howls with laughter. And then of course ordered the French fries. Um such a fun guy, man. Always had a joke, always had a smile. We had such a good time at all of our live events with Pat, whether it was our live shows or Starcast. And we uploaded a lot of those videos and I'm glad that we got so many moments with him. Let's talk about some of your fun stories though. He was known to be a ribber and, uh, he had a rib for Mr. Jarrett once upon a time, a rather smelly one, I believe. Good Lord, man. You know, Pat, Pat liked to, Pat liked to laugh and, uh, no matter whose expense it was when Pat and I both came back and when did we come back? 92, we we were not to ever be in the office. So, you know, that was part of the, part of the deal. Funny how those deals always change, but Pat and I would work out of our house. We didn't need to come in the office, so on and so forth. And finally, this is like, you guys need to have offices. So we got offices, um, in the talent relations department side by side. And, we, we didn't decorate our offices. We just left them as is and, and all this shit, some white walls and a plain desk and shit. And one day Vince comes in and says, God damn, are you guys ever going to put anything up? You know, I mean, decorate, do something. And we're like, no, because the next time you fire me, this is all I'm taking with me. I got everything I need in this bag right here. And oh god damn it, get get with creative services, get some pictures up in here and, and get this decorated. So Pat and I did go to creative services. And we went through the files and we got every outtake picture of Vince that we could find. Oh god. Him doing stupid shit. And we had these giant posters blown up. And plastered both of our fucking offices with pictures of nothing but Vince doing stupid shit. And our offices were identical. Creative services hung all the shit. And he came in. I don't know if he was really hot or not. But I think part of it was like, you know, God damn it. Um, when he finally came back in the office. And then that's where I got the, the Kamala's coffin. Because Vince was like you know, get some nice artwork in here and shit. And he had some things framed for me and shit to put in the office. But it was, that's just the way that Pat and Pat and my mind worked a little bit. And so Jerry Jarrett, when, when Jerry Jarrett came into the office, um, during his consulting gig, gave him an office, an inside office. He didn't get no window, uh, an inside office in there that, he could put his shit in and stuff like that. And Pat used to care. Well, I'm going to digress again. When I came back to work, uh, up here this time, we were at WrestleMania in New York and Pat and I are sitting on the, the ramp up to gorilla position. Cause there's a long motherfucker there in, uh, the New York stadium. And we're talking, we're reminiscing. Jeff Jarrett comes up. Jeff goes up, comes up, says, Hey Pat, how you doing? And he's like, looks up, goes, Who are you? 
And he says, goes, uh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. And Vince, I mean, uh, Pat looks at me and he, he goes, Brucey, you remember that fucking guy, that fucking, the, the fucking promoter from Tennessee, the, the goof, the idiot, the, ah, the, the, you know, remember him? This, huh? And I said, yeah, Pat. I said, that's his son. He looks up at Jeff, looks back at me, goes, no, 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 no. The fucking Gideon, the goof from Tennessee. Oh, my God, did we rib him. My and I'm trying to explain to him that, yeah, Pat, no, that's his son right there. And it's, yeah, and he just, he just didn't put two and two together. And, you know, that was during time that, that Pat was kind of yeah. slowing down a little bit. <coughs> so we go on. By the way, how gracious was Jeff in that moment when you're oh. literally shitting on his dad to him and he doesn't know, and Jeff knows he doesn't know. So, you know, can't be sore at a, an elderly, but yeah, oh, Jeff was fine with it. Jeff, Jeff was laughing his ass off at it. Of course. But we would, we would send Jerry, um, across the building or down, you know, down the stairs or something to someone's office. Uh, so-and-so needs to see you, Jerry. Huh? What? Wh- why? He'd call them. They wouldn't answer their phone and shit. We'd pick someone that wasn't in the office and give him the wrong directions to their office. And then he would try and find it and all this shit and be gone for a while. So during time, Pat would have these little sulfur stink bombs. Oh, that when you step on them uh-huh. and they break, oh, it's disgusting. The worst. And so he's like, let's get it in here so that when he comes in, he steps on it and, oh, boy, it's going to stink. He's going to go, what the fuck? And the whole place is going to stink. Which is a double rib because our offices are across the hall. So we're going to smell it too. But, you know, what the fuck? It'll be on him. So I'm trying to rig it in the wheel of his chair so that when he sits in his chair and pulls his chair up, it will break and no one's any the wiser. And I'm trying to get it in there. I'm rigging it. And he's like, Oh my God, the Brucey, he's coming. He's coming. Hurry up. Just throw it down. So I throw it down thinking it's going to break, but it's plastic that I'm throwing it down onto it. It just bounces right back up. And I'm like, fuck, God damn it, Patterson, I'm going to step on it, step on it. And I step on the fucking thing, and it breaks. And? Sticks to my shoe. Yep. And Jerry walks back in and, and all this shit, and he's like, oh, what's this stink? Oh. Eh. He's crossed between fucking Jim Barnett and Jerry Jarrett here. <laughs> oh, what's that smell? <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, come into my office, my office stinks. Cause I got it all over my fucking shoe. And so I said, I don't know, man. I said, I think it's, it's down there, Jerry, uh, in JJ's office. So he goes down to JJ's office and I go in his office and you know, those mats for the chair. Yep. I'm scraping this off my shoe onto his mat so that I can at least get it off my shoe. And it was, it was just a horrible rib, but Jerry, you know, we would, 
have him come and, and work with us and things like that. And he was really homesick and was especially homesick this one time. We were working at my house and uh, sent Jerry to LaGuardia Airport on a Friday afternoon around 4 o'clock. The worst. Brother, anybody that lives in the Northeast, you know what it's like going uh, anywhere near LaGuardia Airport at 4 o'clock in the afternoon from Connecticut. And we were in Wilton. So the, the car comes and picks Jerry up, takes him away. And we, we, Pat would always do these things where you call somebody, and especially with the cell phones and the car phones, and it goes out. Yeah, the place, hey, hey, Conrad, I got that guy. He, he's got the $4 million uh, uh, mortgage for you. Listen, you're going to make so much money on this. His name is... And he lives at the, the on the right there in Texas. And we were sitting there laughing because it's a Friday afternoon. It's been one of those weeks. And he says, Why don't we call Jerry? And I called Jerry. It's on uh the, there's a car phone in there. I don't, there wasn't a lot of, uh, just regular cell phones. People had car phones in and I said, Hey Jerry, uh, Hey, listen, man, we're just talking events. And he's thinking that, uh, he wants to get together with you first thing in the morning. Huh? I said, yeah, I know, man. Uh, you know, but you probably should just come back get, you know, get your room back or whatever. And, uh, he's, he wants to see for, well, I haven't been home in however long you haven't been home. So <laughs> I hang up on him. He calls right back. I said, yeah, Jerry, sorry, man. I don't know about that. You cut out. You just you know, went away. I said, I've been trying to call you. <laughs> what does he want to meet about? Well, you know, we got, uh, for, uh, of course that'll be around WrestleMania, but then when we go to the, for, the SummerSlam, we'll get to the, and we're going to use, and he's going, I can hear, you know, there's no, nothing wrong with the connection. Right. Cause I can hear him. Hello. Hello, Bruce. I can't hear you. Hello. And Pat and I are on fucking, we got it on speakerphone. Y'all are dying. And we're just, huh? Y'all are dying. It's the funniest yes, thing ever. Just uh, fucking tremendous. <laughs> so now Pat calls him. Same thing. And Pat's telling about this important meeting he's got to get back for. Well, next thing you know, phone rings and it's Vince's assistant. Oh, no. And it's Sylvia, and she says, Bruce, hold for Vince. <sighs> Bruce, God damn it! Are you fucking with Jarrett? <laughs> now he hears Pat and I laughing our asses off. So he knows the answer. 
This God damn it. I'm trying to fucking conduct business here. This fucking idiot keeps calling me, telling me that you're telling him he's got to come back tomorrow to meet with me tomorrow morning. I got nothing to meet with him about. I don't want to fucking see his goddamn face tomorrow. Stop fucking with Jared. Click. What do you think Pat does? He calls Jeff. I mean, calls Jerry calls right Jared, back. Calls Jared back <laughs> right away. Oh yeah, and just was like, "Ah, why would you talk and tell him? Ah, this was a, a big surprise. This was a thing. Now Vince is upset because he thinks you're going to be. You need to go home. And now we're we're just going to change everything now. Okay, go. You go. You go home. We'll take care of it. Hangs up. So Jerry now has no fucking clue what 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 it was going to be. And of course, Jerry fucking calls Vince back. Now the ribs now on Vince and and Jerry because Pat keeps fucking with him. And that was the kind of shit that we could do to get kind of just get through our day. You had to. You absolutely just fucking fucking had to do that kind of shit and 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 you know, when Jerry did the whole thing and we talked about it on one of our fucking episodes about, uh, Jerry, me, Vince, Pat, Jerry in a car and we get to a rest stop and Vince has to talk to Jerry about, you know, putting Jeff on the show 17 times or something like that. And I was done. Look good for you, pal. And, uh, and it was a very nice talk. And Jerry comes back and he says, Oh my, I've never been yelled at like that in my life. Pat and I look at each other and go, Yelled at? Fuck you. You didn't even get a stern talking to, motherfucker. You want to hear yelled at? Just hang around me for about two more fucking hours when we get to TV. And Pat just, just loved that kind of shit. But speaking of rest stops, you know, you stop at a rest stop late at night. Most of the time, people who stop at rest stops go in and use the bathroom. Right. Well, we had to go. And one of the best ones <laughs> is, so like a lot of times Vince would drive or Pat would drive and I'd run shotgun. JR and Vince are in the back. So JR and Vince immediately jump out of the car and they go to the to the bathroom. Well, Pat and I are sitting there, we're just kind of looking around. I was like, why the fuck? Nobody's nobody's here, nobody's around. The fuck do we gotta go into a stinky ass fucking bathroom for? So we would just take care of our business right there. But we would do like a fucking perimeter circle. Wait, hang on, just so we're clear. You're just you're just number one. There's no number twos on the side of the road here. There's no number twos. Okay. Not yet. Okay. Okay. But we, we piss in a per- perimeter circle all the way from every end of the car, all the way around. So that no matter how Jr. comes back to the car, he's got to walk through piss. He's not just a little piss. He's got to walk through like a mountain of foamy piss. Oh God. Like he can't get into the car without having to walk through our piss. Who else participating in this pissing contest? That's just me and Pat. Okay. 
but it was a lot of piss. Vince McMahon is not partaking in the piss. No, Vince went in to go pee like a, like a human and shit. I got you. And then of course, when he comes in, we let him get his side and shit. And then JR is just like, well, what the fuck? Yeah. Funny fucking ha ha real nice. And I got, got fucking piss on my shoes. But you know, those were just kind of the, the fun things that we did. Tell me about, uh, tell me about, uh, your, your great close personal friend, Hugo. Oh God. Hugo Savinovich. That was another one where Vince was God damn. I got to get you guys some help and brings in Hugo Savinovich and Hugo was wearing like these ear cuffs and fucking rings on every finger. And I don't know. It was Hugo was a gimmick. Hugo's a great guy, but Hugo was a gimmick. And, uh, Pat. Would <laughs> Pat would take him to garage sales and shit. Like we'd we'd leave in the middle of the day to go get something to eat or something, and and Pat would look up and go find a garage sale just to get Hugo to buy shit. Oh, this is nice. Oh, look at this beautiful lamp for you. Uh, look, it's a cutty sort. That's your drink. You love the cutty. And Get Hugo to just buy shit so that he would have it. But we would go down uh, what we called the Little Red Store. It's a Little Red Store uh, down in Greenwich and get sandwiches and shit. And in the middle of the, the deli, they had this table that was full of donuts and cookies and pastries and all this shit. And Hugo would always tell us that he was on a diet. So Pat would buy a huge box of pastries and cookies and donuts and shit to see how long it would take him before he could get Hugo to eat the entire box of pastries. <laughs> you look good, Hugo. You got to treat yourself one day. Look at you. You're working out, too. You work out, you got to replenish, you get the, you get the donut with the sugar. It's good for you. It's good. And he would have Hugo eat like enough food for an office full of people and have sugar and shit all dripping down his face and all this stuff. And then, and Pat took great pride in putting on about 40 pounds of Hugo Savinovich. What a fucker. It, you got to do this shit. Or else you're going to go fucking crazy. We, we, we would leave Vince's house like 1130 at night. All right. This one particular night. It's 1130. I told Vince this the other day. We were laughing. And we've been there since like eight in the morning, man. And it's a Saturday. And we just, we're done. We're done at this point. You're 15 hours in. I'm done. So we would stand in the courtyard, Vince's house, getting into our cars. He's like, Brucey, where are we going to go? I got to get a drink. Oh, my God. I need a fucking vodka. And I was like, okay, we'll, we'll eat, get something. But where? Because it's 1130 at night. Not everybody's going to be s still serving that late. Vince walks out and goes, hey, guys, what, what are you doing? Ah, you going to go get a pop? And, uh, hang on, I'll, I'll go get my shit. No, no, we're getting away from you. Just stay here. So we go to this place. 
uh, Giovanni's in up on High Ridge in in Sanford, and the the old man ran it. Giovanni uh, was there at the door. Places closed, but he knows us, and he's like, "Come on in. I'll get you guys a couple porterhouses, baked potato, and uh, salad, and just sit sit in the bar." Just whatever you want. Just uh, I'll leave the one girl here for you. She'll get you all your drinks. Take your time, whatever you want. So being one of those incredibly just fucked up days, man, we sat there and Pat's drinking vodka tana and I'm pounding beers. And then I switched to vodka because he's drinking vodka. And Pat's telling me stories. He's telling me stories he probably shouldn't have been telling me. But in it, you know, it was Pat really opening up to me and, and just, uh, you know, we got really, really personal. I guess there was a point in the story that I got a look on my face and Patrick looks at me and he tilts his head a little bit and he reaches over and grabs my hand and he says, Brucey, Brucey, it's okay. You're not my type. And in this moment, I'm a little bit hurt. Sure. Because how, you how think you're, can I not be as tight? You think you're a damn good-looking man. I get it. I'm a fucking damn good-looking man and a good catch. Who okay. wouldn't want me? All right. And, uh, yeah, and there, there were just great moments like that. <laughs> we would fucking. And then we would just start laughing on and just kind of go off, off from there. But it was, uh, yeah, it was. Pat was all about making people laugh and having fun. Let's, um, let's bounce around a little bit because I know that you've got some fun stories involving a shoe shine. Oh, sport bastard. You know, office buildings, you have it in your office. Uh, you know, you have the guy that comes by with the shoe shine box and goes from office to office, collects people's shoes. And then he takes them down and, he has a little spot set up there. He shines the shoes and he brings them back to people's offices. They pay him and tip him what have you. So this guy was probably 70, 80 years old. Nice old man. He would put his shoe shine box outside in front of the women's restroom. And Pat would go as the guy was going around to pick up shoes, Pat would move his shoe box. Sometimes he'd move it across the hall. Sometimes he'd put it in the women's uh, bathroom. And this one time, man, he did it and he forgot that he had done it. And he had left and gone to lunch. And when he comes back from lunch, all the women are going crazy, just, you know, looking, looking around. And this poor old man is sitting there crying. Vince is furious because mm. he knows. And he walks in and goes, Patrick, can I see you for a minute? That a pace. What'd you do with the shoe shine box? He goes, what? And he says, the shoe shine guy. You took his box. And uh Pat just starts laughing and he had forgotten that he had taken it and he put it in a stall in the women's locker in the women's bathroom and locked the door 
so that nobody could even go in there and check. Yeah. And yeah, that was the poor guy. But he it would you would have workers in the office with ladders and shit. And Pat would just go by and take their ladder and get in the elevator and take it down to the first floor. They come back, they're looking all over the place. In the meantime, somebody's calling, What the fuck is this ladder doing down here on the first floor? The best one he did was um Fred Blassie used to Fred Fred's office was on the second or third floor, I think. And Freddie would go downstairs to the basement where the mail room is, and he would hang out with the mail guy and the maintenance guy. It's just bullshit with them all day long. So Pat goes in. Pat goes in on A-level. That's the bottom level. He goes in, has a cigarette with the maintenance guy, and sees Freddie down there. And then he's thinking. Goes in his briefcase, takes out a piece of paper, writes, elevators out of service. Use stairs. Puts it on A-level. Stops at B-level. Puts one on B-level. Every level... In the entire office, every floor, Pat put a note, elevator out of service. Please use stairs. Please use stairs. So all day long, people are fucking walking up and down the stairs and shit. Pat's using the elevator. (laughs) And he's like, well, fucking Marks, push the button, you know? And Patchy's in the elevator going up and down stairs, but he would go downstairs to check on Freddie. And he would like walk, he would go downstairs and walk, and go, oh boy, the fucking, when are they going to fix the elevator? Out of base, I'm out of breath down, down here. And I'm fucking, I got to get up for a Vince meeting in a minute. And Freddie's like, ah, cocksuckers, I've been down here for three hours. I'm not walking back up those fucking stairs in my office. Freddie stayed downstairs the entire day until he finally just said, fuck it, and left. Because he wasn't going to walk up those stairs. But then finally someone took one down on the second floor, and then people realized. But yeah, all day all day had people going up and down the fucking stairs just on a whim. Since we're talking about legends, you got anything on uh, Chief J. Strongbow? Oh, Jesus Christ. My first time ever to go out with Pat and Louie, I just moved up to Connecticut. And Strongbow was up visiting, and and, and we were going to see if Strongbow could help out with the booking with Vince and Pat. And, and they loved to fuck with Strongbow and just just rib Jay unmercifully. And we go to this restaurant. It's, it's called Monero's in Greenwich. Great steakhouse, man. I wish it was still there. They had this great steak sauce. And... Pat, and this is just so simple, but it was so fucking funny. Chief was bragging about the brand new white shirt that he had gotten from a country club where he played golf. Oh, yeah, Wimpy, I went in and they gave me this. Uh, you, got, you never played here. You know, I'm bragging about it. I played this course and and these guys got me this beautiful shirt and all this stuff. And I'm watching Pat. And as he's talking, he's laughing, he's got the fucking steak sauce. And he's just fucking with the bottle and fucking with the bottle and all this stuff. And then he, he, he like shakes it a little bit and I see him kind of, and he's just playing with himself, basically. 
Pat puts the steak sauce on on his steak and everything, and then he fucks with it a little more. And he goes, Chief, you got to try the steak sauce. It is the best. And Chief takes the bottle, and Pat goes, you got to shake it up good, which Pat had done right before Pat poured his steak sauce out. Because you got to shake it up good and mix it all up, and it's the best. And fucking Chief shakes that bottle. And, I mean, it couldn't have been written better because the very first shake, essentially the bottle emptied right all over his face and all down that beautiful white shirt. And I've never seen someone laugh so fucking hard as Pat fucking did just getting Chief with a simple fucking rib. I mean, Pat was always on. He was going to get you somehow, some way, and it could be some of the corniest simplest, cheapest ribs you could ever imagine. But by God, he was going to get you. And I just thought that was one of the funniest things. And I remember not laughing because I, because Strongbow hated me. And I didn't want to be laughing at him, just give him another reason to hate me anymore. Why did Strongbow hate you? Because I was me. Oh, yeah. Well, you're pretty hateable. I am very hateable. It's weird because uh, you're one of my best friends, but everybody else hates you. And, uh, I don't know. I kind of like not, it that way. Not there's, everybody. There's less people competing to be your best friend. You know, it's like down to me and Vince. <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 who else hates me? Well, let's move on. Let's talk about, uh, one of my favorite things as a kid. And I think they're actually coming back a little bit. One of those like Megan? wrestling buddies, the Hulk does buddy. Megan, does, Megan, does Megan hate me? No. Okay. But she understands you know, in a divorce type situation, you know, I keep Bruce and, and Stephanie and Amber and Kane. We're not getting divorced. I'm just saying when bad things happen, she understands that you're my friend and she's just sort of there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Hulk buddy. Oh God. You've, damn. You've told me a great story about this before, but we haven't ever shared it on the show. So Hulk and Vince were a little estranged at the time. <laughs> And that Hulk had been off doing his things and, and we had been doing without Hulk and, and Hulk was coming into the office to meet one-on-one with Vince, straighten everything out and let's get back in the Hulkster's good graces and let's, let's start doing business again. And you remember the Hulk buddies they are the big plush. Yep. You know, Hulk buddies, we had a Hulk buddy and a warrior buddy and a Savage King. Yeah. Sibiasi. Yeah. So we, all we know really at this point is that Hulk's coming in to meet with Vince and that we're probably going to meet with him after he meets with Vince. So to break the ice, Pat and I thought it would be funny. Okay. Maybe this might've been a little bit more me, but. Pat was involved. We were like two children. He says, what if we tied a noose oh. around the Hulk buddy? Yep. And we lower it from the roof, like right in front of Vince's window. Because uh. we had roof access and there was a spot right there. So we tie it all up. We run upstairs. And we're lowering the Hulk buddy down. We let it dangle because we know 
that where Hulk is going to sit in the meeting, he's going to have his back to that window. And the only person that's going to see it is Vince. So we're dangling it. Then we start swinging it back and forth in front of the window. Then we pull it up. And then we drop it down hard like, ah! And then we swing it some more. And we're, and we're having a good old time. And all of a sudden, we hear that fucking door on the roof come open. God damn it, Bruce Pat! What the fuck? Okay. Did I mention we were on a roof? Yes. When you're on a roof, other than the air conditioning and electrical shit that's up there, there's not really any place to hide. No. This was during the summer. It was kind of a warm day. Like two little kids. Pat and I grabbed our Hulk buddy and ran and hid behind the air conditioner. Oh, my. Like... There's no place else for us to be. He didn't, he came down over to the side and we weren't there and shit, but it was, he looked for us and then we're, we're sitting up there and it's hot as fuck. Well, I think it's safe to go back down. And all of a sudden it realizes on us, the one way down from the roof, the door that opens up onto the fourth floor is directly across from his office which has big glass doors so they can see everything. We just thought if we waited long enough, they'd forget about it. But then it got too hot. We just said, fuck it. We went down and got our ass chewing. Because apparently the timing of the Hulk buddy being dangled in the window was during a very heated exchange. And Vince sold it, which made Hulk turn around and see it. Oh. And then they were discussing that we didn't take Hulk seriously. And now we're hanging him. And that, yes. And that, that Bruce and Pat, they're not thinking of my creativity and all this other shit. And he turns around and goes, there you go. That's what your guys think of me. So it wasn't really good, but you know, Hey, let's talk about, uh, his relationship with Vince, because I'm sure over the years there were some fights. Oh boy. Yeah, it, you know, it was Vince and, and Pat. Look, we worked so many hours that you you get sick of each other and you need a break. Um, and Vince would argue you never get sick of us and shit, and, but we, we would we would need breaks. Vince could be a little intense, and when. We would do, especially when we started Monday Night Raw on the road. Vince would be doing commentary. Pat and I would write the shows. I would kind of run the backstage while also trying to produce Vince on commentary, and Pat would handle all the wrestling shit. You had to get in the car and get going to the next town as soon as you can because you had to drive at night. So we would get in the car. And Vince and I would just start going at it. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You know, you did this, you did this, you did this. Why didn't that happen? Why didn't this happen? And and we would fight. I mean, it would it would loud, loud voices and a lot of cursing and a lot of shit. Just one night, 
Pat pulls off the side of the road, pulls into a, a bar, parks the car, gets out, walks inside the bar. Vince and I are still going at each other. We don't realize anything other than after a little while, about 10, 15 minutes. Is he taking a shit in there? What the fuck is going on? Let's go in and see what's going on. Vince and I get out of the car. We go in the bar. Pat's sitting at the end of the bar, smoking a cigarette, drinking a drink. We go down. Um, Patrick, what are you doing? I'm going to fucking have my cigarette and have my drink, and you two motherfuckers can go to the other end of the bar, get all your shit out, and when you're done, then we can get back in the car and fucking go. Tired of listening to it. Spat basically managed us to the other end of the bar for us to fight our shit out and then come down and tell him when we were done fighting so he would drive us the rest of the way. Another part of the crew in that era, uh, the late great Howard Finkel. I'm sure there's a good Howard and Pat story in there somewhere, maybe a few. Yeah, Howard, um, Howard worked you know, real closely with Vincent Pat for many years as well before I got there. And Howard would be the, the fact checker and Howard would be the guy that could tell you the card from the last events there and pull everything up. And Fink was a computer, man. He was, he was just computer genius in so many ways. And back in the day before these things called computers, you know, where like you just like type on it and then you could see it as I'm typing on it, shit like that, instantaneously communicate. We didn't have that. We had memos that were uh, emails, basically, written on paper that were delivered to you by the mail room department and, and or back in the day, slid under your door. Your door was shut. And Pat concocts a memo, an all-employee uh, all inner office memo. It's like two, all Titan employees. Subject, Super Bowl party from Howard Finkel. And Pat goes on to do this elaborate memo about, I love my Titan family and I am having a party at my house for the Super Bowl. We're not just talking a game, all the pregame activities. Everything will be at my house, food, fun, games, liquor, everything, whatever you want, we'll have. Bring the family, everyone invited. And Pat sends these out to everyone in the company. Except Howard. Oh. So Howard... Uh, and it was RS. Oh, and it was like, you must RSVP by the end of the day today. So Howard is in his office and he's getting all these phone calls from people. Oh, Mr. Finkel, you know, people from the warehouse he had never met before. Mr. Finkel, this is so kind. I, I'm going to bring my wife and my six kids. Look, we, we've got our in-laws in. Is it okay if we bring them too? I was like, what are you talking about? Well, your Super Bowl party, because Howard was going to have a little Super Bowl party. He invited, he had invited me, Pat, and Vince 
to come over to his house for the Super Bowl party. Three people, not 300. Yeah. Yeah. So people are calling him and going all over the fucking place. And then finally he got a hold of someone who had the, the memo and he was, he was so upset. Did he immediately know it was you and Pat? It wasn't me. Sure. Not it. Not it. Um, he went to Linda Oh, and he was, he was pretty upset and Linda read it and she knew immediately and Howard didn't want to believe that Pat would do that. So, um, Linda, I was there for that. When Linda came down and wanted to strangle Pat, she's like, Patrick, do you have any idea how much commotion that this one little piece of paper is causing in the office today? (laughs) And he's like, okay, I will take care of it and all this shit. So he tries to go down and talk to Howard. Howard locks himself in his office and won't come out. Oh. Won't answer the door, won't answer the phone, nothing. Pat finally has to go get a key to get into the office to talk to Howard. Howard won't talk to him. Finally, Linda talks to Howard. Pat talks to Howard. He hugs Howard, and he basically took Howard. So he's he's like taking Howard down to hug him and tell him how much he loves him, right? And I'm sorry, Howard. And in doing so, fucks up Howard's knee by taking him down. Oh my God. The worst day ever for Howard. Yes. So then Pat sends out a retraction. Hey, sorry. You know, blah, blah, blah. And Howard bless his little heart. Like I'll get him back. And Howard sends out an all office memo. The party has now been moved to Pat Patterson's house. Bring all your animals and all this shit. But now everybody knows it's a rib. And instead of calling an RSVP and Pat, they all call Howard again because Pat had his fucking phone forwarded. So that was just, you know, kind of the, the, the nice, wonderful shit that we could, we could have fun with Howard with and, and Howard loved it. Howard loved being a part of the, uh, a part of that process and, and what have you. And the, the, I think Howard's 40th birthday party, we had a huge party at Vince's house where everyone went in the pool. The only one that didn't go in the pool because Howard was sick. And how Howard, why even Howard went to the party other than it was paid for and it was going to happen regardless of whether he was sick or not. But everybody's getting thrown in the pool in in their suits and all their nice clothes and shit. Pat, being Pat, Goes over to the gazebo, gets undressed, takes his suit, folds up his pants, takes his shirt off, folds up his shirt, his jacket, folds it all up nice and neat, takes his shoes off, puts them on top, goes over and says, out of bed, you want to go swimming? You go swimming in your birthday suit. But he had his underwears on. What underwear? My underwears. You know how he knew what the front? How to tell the front from the back? Color. Yeah, yellow in front, brown on the back. That's there, how he knew. There you go. He put his underwears on. Pat dives in the pool. Ha, 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 I got all of you. I walk over to the gazebo where Pat has all of his shit nicely folded there and dry. I said, hey, Pat, are these yours? Dropped his shoes in the pool <laughs> and dropped everything in the pool in the deep end so that it would, like, sink. 
nice and have have to have somebody go dive down there to get it. But you know, Pat was Pat was good for a rib, and, and we like to rib Howard and have a little fun. Talk to me about smoking. Anybody who met Pat Patterson knows that uh, he enjoyed a cigarette or two. Oh goddamn, or two shit. In Vince's house <coughs> during the during the winter, he would just go to the front porch and smoke. And uh he would throw his butts, his cigarette butts, off the porch into like the, the landscaping there. They had bushes and shit there. Well, I didn't know that people actually did this. You probably do this. I I didn't realize this was a thing back in the back in the day, but in between seasons like they would come in and have the landscaping people take out the shit like during the winter and put in things for the spring and the summer. So what would happen is Pat during the winter would throw cigarette butts in there. You couldn't see them because of all the fucking snow and all the other shit. When the snow melted <laughs> and it's time for the fucking landscapers to come in and change everything. It looked like a fucking ashtray because of all the cigarette butts and shit that, uh, that Patrick had thrown in there. He was, you know, when he retired, I forget which time this was that he retired, but he couldn't help himself. The, uh, the landscapers always, there were always landscapers at Vince's house doing something somewhere. So Jim Cornette and I, I'm meeting with Vince out by the pool. We would sit under like this little gazebo thing. And as we're sitting there, uh, we hear one of the landscapers come up. And, and, and Pat had called me and told me he was going to do this. So I knew about it. And I hear the landscaper come up with a leaf blower. They're blowing shit all over the place and come up and go, hey, Pat. And he's like, comes up and said, Vince is inside on the phone. So, you know, it's not going to work. Well, and Vince could take hours on the phone sometimes. Pat's sitting there. We're bullshitting me and Cornette and Patrick and all this stuff. And so I finally see Vince is off the phone. I see he's coming back outside. So, okay, go, go back down. So we're sitting there, and as we're uh, working, we hear this. <laughs> and he starts blowing the leaves. Vince is like, ah, it'll just be a second. He's just got this one little spot here to do. Pat's got his shorts on. He's got a hat, you know, way down over his, over his head where you really can't tell. But instead of blowing the leaves away, Pat's blowing all the dirt and the leaves up into our faces. And Vince is like, God damn it. Hey, hey, pal. Hey, pal. Nothing. Boom, blows more shit. Vince comes to the edge. Hey, amigo. If I with that, all this shit comes blowing up in fucking Vince's face till finally Vince comes down around the pool, down the steps to go and uh, confront this guy face to face. And right when he does, Pat sticks the fucking air blower, uh, leaf blower thing right in Vince's face. And goes, I just wanted to blow you, Vince. And realize it was Pat Patterson. But that, in the middle of his fucking day, that's what Pat would come do. Just to fuck with us. One time they went to, they went to uh, um, 
uh, Florida for Christmas. You know those giant uh, concrete statues and shit some people have in their yards? Yep. Well, we had a place and just went out of business, and I went and talked to the guy about it uh, a couple weeks ago. They had, like, the this gigantic um, – I think the chicken was plastic, but they had, like, these concrete, big, huge – when I say huge, I mean, they're, they're, like, fucking 20 feet tall, some of the statues and shit they had there. And so Pat and I go, hey, we want to rent these for, like, a week. And we'll pay to have them delivered. We'll pay to have them get picked up. And the idea was that we were going to put them in Vince's courtyard so that when he came home from Christmas break in Florida, he comes driving up down the winding driveway and shit and runs right into this fucking 20-foot chicken. And the best plans got spoiled. But we, I, yeah, it was, it was going to be an expensive rib. And then... Uh, Somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who had to get the exact address and had to get, you know, oh, yeah, I know the McMahons. Let me call them. Called over to the office and everything got spoiled. You're talking about Florida. It makes me think about uh, all these plane rides. Allegedly, you had one about Quebec City you wanted to share. Well, yeah, see, this is going to be one of those where I go around the A to get to the T. Not necessarily a straight line, but you'll understand once I get there. I'd been in Houston for several weeks. Uh, this was in 2001 when my my wife had been diagnosed with mixed follicular lymphoma, and we had been in Houston to get tests done and all this shit. And I'd just driven back with a couple kids and all this other wonderful shit, and I had to go to TV the next day. We're going to um, Quebec City, I believe it was. Pat Patterson country. But as I was walking out the door, my bag broke, and I had to take all my stuff and throw it into another bag. No big deal. But it was a bag I hadn't used in many, many years. Long short of it, we land in Quebec City, and the customs folks meet us there, and these particular custom folks weren't weren't the most friendly in the world. They got on the plane to explain to us about how uh, they could take our plane if there was anything illegal on it. And they would. They let us know that they were Johnny Law and they were going to fuck with us and all this shit. And everybody gets off and they put their bags in front of them. The guys come down looking at everybody's bag and the guy looks through my bags. And he asked me, says, uh, do you smoke, sir? And I immediately answered, no, I don't smoke. Guy's quiet for a minute. He says, I'm going to ask you again, sir. Um, do you smoke? So, well, not cigarettes. It's kind of quiet again. Stay here, sir. Long short of it, they take everybody in the plane and they let them get in the cars, but they won't let them leave the tarmac and they take me back on the plane. They shut every window on the plane. They made the crew get off the plane. And they questioned me. And now as finally I see what the hell they're looking at. 
and there's an old zigzag paper, uh, rolling papers. And all it was was the flap. Not papers, nothing in it. And on the edge of the flap, there's a little residue on there from where I, you know, scoops up. But when I say residue, I mean like maybe a finger's worth of dust. And the guy's holding this up, and he says, so you don't smoke? I said, no, I don't smoke. I explained to him, man, I grabbed this bag. Haven't done anything in many, many years, and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't even know that was in there. He says, but you don't smoke. Look, man, I don't know how else to answer your fucking question other than no. Then he starts pulling out lighters. Now, I think to this day, I think I still carry a lighter in my bag just because you never know when you're going to need one, right? Right. And he pulls out one lighter. He pulls out two lighters. He pulls out three lighters. He pulls out four lighters. And then he reaches down, pulls out like another handful, about four or five more lighters. And he says, can you tell me what these lighters are for if you don't smoke? <coughs> Enter Pat Patterson. Pat Patterson smoked a lot. And Jerry Briscoe and I used to like sit there and you talk to Pat and Pat would have his pack of cigarettes on the table with his lighter on top of it. And we would get Pat distracted and be talking to Pat for a while and all this shit. And one of us would usually reach over and grab a lighter. Just take his lighter from him. So when he goes to, to smoke, he's got his cigarettes, but no lighter. So Pat used to have Harvey go out and buy him like the big packets of lighters. So he'd yep. have 20 lighters and shit. And it was always our goal to get all the Pats just to see how many cigarette lighters we could get each TV. And so because of that, I had roughly 20 fucking lighters in my bag. Wasn't like I fucking used them or I counted them or anything like that, but they were in my bag. And that is what caused the fucking Ottawa Customs to pull me off of the fucking plane, look through my shit, because I had a zigzag flap and over 20 lighters because I like to rib Pat Patterson and steal his lighters. That's fucked up. It is fucked up. That's your government dollars at work, Canada. Didn't uh, Pat have some fun with an ashtray and one of Vince's cars once? Oh, fuck. So then she's had this really nice clonet. And it was convertible. Mitch used to park it uh, when he'd come to the studio down by the loading dock. And in the Clinet was a beautiful crystal ashtray. Very nice, you know, all that shit. But Pat would make it a point that whenever the top was down on the Clinet to go by and have a cigarette and put his cigarettes out in Vince's crystal ashtray. Drove Vince banana as pat patterson would say what the fuck they're going banana tonight out of pace that's that is one of the, yeah. the critical points of a, a pat patterson impression is you you mix up your plurals right so if there's an s you drop the s sean michael oh and the crowd go banana yeah or if you're just gonna eat you know it depends yes
Let's talk about some, some real wrestling stuff for a minute here. I mean, it's been talked about a lot that not only was he the first intercontinental champion, he's also the father of the Royal rumble. Uh, I think famously he got his inspiration from Rorschach's territory. He would kick off a, a bunch of series, uh, of matches and angles and, and pieces of business for the new year with a, a battle Royal, a big battle Royal event in late January. So they tried on a couple of house shows. It's not exactly what everyone hopes for. Eventually Dick Ebersol Here's the idea helps convince Vince to go with it. And a TV special to counter program. Jim Crockett is born and we call it the Royal rumble. And it's different from a traditional battle Royal. Instead of there being 20 or 30 guys in the ring at the exact same time, uh, we get the big entrance for each individual guy. Ebersol thinks, man, that'll make for great TV. You had suspense and the, and the clock and the countdown and the separate entrances. It can be big pomp and circumstance, and it might even make the action a little easier to follow. If there's just starting with two guys and then adding from there, instead of starting with 20 or 30 all at once, but it became arguably the number two or the number three biggest show of the year, you know, with SummerSlam and obviously WrestleMania, uh, being the, the granddaddy, but Royal rumble, man. That that's, that's going to be a legacy that will live forever because of Pat Patterson, right? Absolutely. And Pat was looking for a way and for a different type of a match and attraction. And the way that Pat would always describe it was it was legal run-ins. Wanted to have a match where you could add to it throughout the match. Um, and all the run-ins are legal. You have a legal run-in every two minutes, another guy come out they get in and they say fuck him eliminate him and then he don't go back you could have 20 people and then go down to two then you add more um and the way you know probably the way that pat explained it in the beginning was a little confusing we had we had one it may have been st louis or maybe in rhode island i don't know um and it didn't really go that well i don't think the live audience was that into it but as you say, Dick Ebersol heard the idea and, and kind of tweaked it a little bit as far as the selling and explanation, making it easier to understand what the hell it was. And the Royal Rumble was was built. And the first one was in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada for USA Network. It was the highest rated uh, television show on cable for a long, long time. And the one thing I always remember about that was, you know, I always thought it was Martell. I think somebody corrected me and said it was Bret Hart uh, that we forgot to get out. But back then, you didn't, other than having it in your head, yes, we wrote things down and had notes on certain things, but there wasn't, you didn't have 20 writers and assistants and everything to help you write all this shit out so you know exactly who gets eliminated. This was all in Pat's head. Pat's got 30 guys in a room. Okay, you come out next. He had a list of entry. He knew how they were going over and was, okay, make sure you get out by him and you get out by him. Um, not as sophisticated as it became in, in later years, but that the Royal Rumble, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it, but that was Pat Patterson's baby, man. And we, we nursed that son of a bitch for – for many years, and that was the one time a year I just used to love to just settle down and work with Pat. We eventually brought more people into the process. 
uh, to what it is now. And it's pure, pure genius as far as how he came up with that and what it has come to be today. Talk to me about WrestleMania 12. You know, I think most people know the story. Hulk Hogan was obviously the bee's knees for the company for a long, long time. But once Vince is looking for his next big star, Pat was loud that it needs to be Bret Hart. It needs to be Shawn Michaels. He's pushing for better matches, more work rate. And even if that means smaller guys, it'll be more entertaining main events. And I think he is, is most proud perhaps of the Ironman match at WrestleMania 12 with Bret and Shawn. Can you tell us about that one? The Iron Man match, Pat was retired at that time. And, you know, I used to joke about every time Pat would retire, he would get another big screen TV. Big screen TVs were, were big back then. And Pat's first retirement, we, we all pitched in and got him a real nice big screen TV to retire and move to Florida with. But Pat and Louie were, you know, determined to – move on, you know, get out of, get out of wrestling and, and live life. Pat wanted to be a bartender of all things. Well, I can talk to people and I like to drink. I said, yeah, Pat is a bartender. You don't get a drink. Um, it was, uh, somewhere along, I don't know, maybe December, January where, Pat had, had been talking to me and he's like, what are you doing for WrestleMania? I told him what we were doing for WrestleMania. He says, what if you had an Ironman match? I'm thinking, God damn, you know, that's a long time. But Pat in his head knew that Brett and Sean could have a great match. And he knew that they could have a great 60 minute match. Um, but to have it be a draw at the end of 60 minutes was something that we had never done before. And then going to sudden death overtime for the championship and have, have Sean pull it out all that, that entire match, that finish, uh, everything about it was all Pat. And for me, I thought it worked beautifully. Uh, I, I know there were a lot of naysayers and people that didn't enjoy it as much, but it was a beautiful story that highlighted Two of his favorites, uh, Brett and Sean, two guys that Pat saw an awful lot of, saw a lot in and nurtured them to the point of being top guys. And this was a way to just show and exploit what they did best, and that was wrestle. So to that, um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was absolutely tra- great, but that was all Pat. Talk to me about Fatal Four Ways always looking for something different. You know, you've got tag teams, uh, you got a tag team match. Um, we've seen that. What if, you know, there was a, and it didn't always start off as a fatal four way. There were four corners matches where it was ways to get more people involved in a match. And it was also one of those situations where it was a way that you didn't have to beat somebody. Um, and they could, you know, quote, lose the match. And Pat was always looking at shit, shit like that. Pat really helped um, when we were we did our first triple threat. ECW did did theirs one way, and they did elimination style, and 
it was it was weird the way that they were doing theirs at the time. Some people thought it was more traditional and better, but it was Pat Patterson that I had contacted. Does it help me here, Pat? What do we do? Um, here's how it's been done. And through talking to Pat Patterson is how we came up with the idea, okay, you have the match, but there's only one winner. You you just you have three guys that can go out at it at any time. And the template for how the how most of the triple threats are kind of laid out now that came out of Pat's head because he wanted, he always figured you got to have something down so you can put a spotlight on something else in the match. If you have too much shit going on, it doesn't mean anything. So he really liked to, to divvy things up and take something that was traditional and make it non-traditional and put twists put twists and turns to these things. So whereas, and this came a lot during the attitude era because I think Pat felt nobody cares about the rules. They want excitement. They want Gaga. They want shit. And as long as you give them good shit, entertaining shit, and it's exciting, no one really cares. That's where we would get into some of these nonsensical, uh, they're outside of the ring for eight minutes and then the match just continues on. <laughs> There's no count out. Or <coughs> my favorite is in the middle of the day, Pat would come back and he'd be laying out the match to me. I'd go, Pat, it's a fucking DQ. That fucking make the match no DQ. Nobody give a fuck. And, and that's what he would do. Uh, you know, you, Pat had a way of, of communicating and, and there was always the, the double knockout. Pat would tell the stories about working with Backlund and, and Bobby being so scared. And I don't know that Bobby completely trusted Pat when they first started working. And then Pat got him to, to lighten up and, and listen more than anything. Pat had some of the best matches dare say probably the best matches that Bob Backlund ever had. Um, but it was, you know, listen, and, and, and Pat had this thing about you do a double knockout. And you lay there like a fucking douchebag. You're just dead. You're flat. You don't fucking move. You lay there. You're dead. Don't move. Don't blink. And I don't move a finger. Then when you think you've been there too long, you fucking lay there longer. And it was the, that, that type of psychology that Pat would instill in guys in his own way that it was to, to listen to the crowd, listen to the audience. Take that audience on a ride. Don't let the audience dictate to you what the fuck you're going to do or when. He says, if you take your time, they're going to come even more. And it was the, the art of storytelling in that every single thing you did in the match means something. And if it's, well, we always did it this way, and this is the traditional way of doing things, it goes, then fucking change it. Nobody give a fuck. And that attitude kind of helped 
take the chains off in many ways. And you're handcuffed, and then you go, okay, well, wait a minute. Who says we have to be handcuffed? We do. But we don't. And in that, you know, in, in the business and, and, fuck, in life, it just was, it was the same way. Take the fucking handcuffs off. Live it. Bret Hart wrote, I'm sad to learn of the passing of wrestling legend Pat Patterson. Few minds in the profession had the depth that he did. He will stand as being one of the greatest visionaries and for having an incredible imagination that paved wrestling's greatest memories. I can count on one hand, the people who had the deepest understanding of great psychology in pro wrestling, and perhaps Pat was the greatest ever. His ultimate contribution can never properly be measured, but to those who know Pat will always stand the tallest. Uh, he would continue on, but the whole thing about psychology and the deepest understanding I think is really what you're talking about here that he, uh, he saw things differently. And one of the things you've always talked about is the sort of traditional and things non-traditional and how that applied to Pat Patterson's way of thinking. Yes, it did. And, and also, you know, there were times that we would read the agent reports every night, which whoever the, the main agent producer was for the town, they would give you a report of how everything was. And sometimes depending upon the producer, you would get completely different uh, viewpoints on the same matches and the same cards. So we weren't really sure what the hell we were getting out there. And Pat and I would go to the shows, buy a ticket and sit in the crowd. We would go to the merchandise stands and we would talk to people buying merch. We would talk to people in the crowd like we were just fans and, and listen to them and be able to ask them questions without them knowing who the hell they were talking to and then watch the show from a fan perspective. We did it in the Northeast and by the second day in the third match in the second day, first of all, uh, we read the report the morning after the first show that we sat and watched. And it was night and day from what we saw Like the agent. Oh yeah, they did this and, and they blew the roof off for this guy. Oh, this guy didn't get much of a reaction when in some cases it was exactly the opposite. And so we saw, okay, there's a little favoritism going on here. There's, um, that's not an accurate depiction. If, if, if you were to ask me to describe the show, I wouldn't have described the show that way. So the next night we, we get there and we're sitting there and it's the third fucking match in the ring. And I remember the match was doink and it may have been crush and fucking Pat blew up. This is the shit. Fuck it, Brucey. We can't do this anymore. Look at this. We got a good house tonight. They paid money for this shit. And we're going to give them shit. Fuck it. Pat storms back to the back and fucking rips up the goddamn show and just started all over. So take an intermission. And we basically restarted the show and had some fun with it and, and threw everything out the window and just started having fun with the show, which is what a live event was for. 
try shit, but give them some gaga. Don't just, you know, just don't go out and here's a couple of matches and shit. It's the most boring fucking thing in the world. Give them some shit. They watch the television show, which is what brings them to the event. But then when they get to the event, all they see is fucking wrestling matches. Well, see the personalities. Give me a promo. Give me some shit. Give me a twist and a turn. Make something develop and happen that night that you didn't expect to happen. You can do that in a live event. But it was always the formula, traditional, to, oh, well, you have your main event. Here's your card. People want to see wrestling matches. They wanted to be entertained. So entertain them. And that was that was Pat's whole thing. Pat was all about passion. Pat was about being able to go out and and try. Every night, he would start with a blank canvas. What worked in San Diego may not work in New Hampshire. So you get out there and you get a vibe and, and you go with it. You, you play and you, you paint a new picture each night. Then when you get to television, you decide which, which story and how, how that story is going to be told um, on television and, and how. Uh, you know, it, it's, there was never a, a more stand up guy. You know, if, if someone disagreed with Pat, Pat went to him, confronted him. Randy Savage was so upset with Pat one time because he felt that he had been slighted because his father wasn't invited to the, uh, old timers battle Royal in the Meadowlands. Pat got on a plane and flew to Tampa to confront Randy. So Randy, if you're mad at you're mad at someone, I'm the guy that made that decision. I'm the guy that made the oversight. Be mad at me. And I'm standing here right in front of you right now. You want to punch me? Punch me. Do whatever it is you want to do. But no, I'm not going to fucking run from you and I'm not going to uh, not address it because here's what's happened and here's why. And that's the kind of guy Pat was. So when you, you go through years of, of misunderstanding and, and putting things on Pat because of his choices in life, um, to those that have never met the man uh, and say things like that, I say, fuck you. Um, because there, there was not a, a better, uh, warmer, decent human being I love throughout all this going back and, and finding pictures of Pat with the kids when they were babies. Yep. And it was, I don't know who was, <laughs> who was happier that I had kids, you know, me or, or Pat and Louie. And they, they were just, um, we, we, we lost, we lost Louie, um, in the middle of that. And, he he was so influential in, in all of our lives that, you know, we talked about naming our kids, Pat and Louie. Having a boy and a girl, hey, it works. However the fuck you want to slice it. And um, we changed that, but, but still, it's the whole life when you – 
I, I don't know. People sometimes will sit there and go, so they'll say, what it I don't care what people say. Um, sat there the other day and realized that more than half of my life was spent with Vincent Pat. And, you know, there was 10 years there I was gone from the company, but I still had a relationship with Vincent Pat. And Pat came to our shows when we did live shows and sang, did his karaoke and was a part of it and told stories and opened up. And I think that that allowed people to see him and hear him in a different way. Um, but Pat Patterson, the man, was able to help me through navigate. Now, think about that, man. Here's a guy who came to the States not understanding the language, lived his dream, was a gay man in a straight man's business, as they always would say, and succeeded, over-exceeded, and excelled, and was the best at what he did, changed and innovative, innovated a business that some people would probably say, oh, he should never should have been in. Well, not only should he have been in it, he it wouldn't be the same if there were not a Pat Patterson. He did things he didn't have to do. He would make sense of things for me, spell it out, where I'm a kid, and I don't know. I reacted a certain way, and I probably reacted immaturely. And here's a guy that doesn't have to take the time, taking the time, to explain to me how I could have handled things differently. And the little tweaks in my life that Pat made, much like the little tweaks that Pat made in stories that he told, made all the difference in my life. Two words, what if. Instead of telling the boss, the owner of the company, the chairman, God damn, that idea just sucks. It's fucking stupid. I don't get it. Taught me how to approach it from a viewpoint of, okay, if you disagree with it, cool. Come up with an alternative and present it as a what if, not your idea sucks, mine's better. It's your idea has merit. What if we tried this? And that applies in, in everybody in every 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 wake of life and every your personal life, your business life, whatever. And Pat taught me to love people for who they are and what they are, not stereotypes and what you think or what uh, or definitely not what other people think. I have the 
the utmost respect and love for that man that I I can only hope that every one of you listening have someone in your life that like a Pat Patterson um He's a genius. <sighs> he was he, he was the best friend you could ever ask for, man. Uh, do whatever he wanted. Always there to listen. You always knew where he stood. And I I love him. Um, and he's going to be missed. Already is. This has been one of the worst weeks of my life. <laughs> and... Uh, Sorry about that. Um, Losing someone in your life is always hard, but losing someone that is a part of your life and a part of you is even harder. And and Pat was so much a part of me. And Jerry Briscoe and I were talking last night and, and just... He was so much more. He was so much more than somebody we worked with. And in this business, you have so many acquaintances and you have so many people you know. You have very few true friends that you can say, hey, he's my friend. And I love him. And Pat Patterson, my friend, I love you. And I didn't, you know, couldn't tweet, couldn't talk. I mean, Vince and I all week. Would all would avoid the subject alone and just tell stories. And some of those I told today. And I'm just sad that I won't have any more. But I'm thankful and grateful for for the years that, that I, I got to spend and be with him. And to anybody that's a fan of this business, you'll never know the contributions that that man made to this business over the last 50 years. Um, and 50 years from now, when somebody says, hey, grab a quick one. That's a Pat Patterson quick one. When somebody else says, Epicase, that's Pat Patterson. When you're talking about the 100th Royal Rumble, wouldn't be if that wasn't Pat Patterson. 
And when you talk about one of the greatest workers, greatest minds in this business, you're still going to be talking about Pat Patterson and the single best finish man in the business. And that's Pat Patterson. And he's touched so many people's lives and you don't even know it. And that's all I got. Because it's, again, I, I couldn't tweet. I couldn't I couldn't find the words. I couldn't. And when I called you to say, hey, Audible, it's just because I had to get it out. And, I, and it was my way of dealing. And there's so much more. Fuck, we, we haven't even done a deep dive. No, and we will. I mean, I, I think we made the right call. I'm, I'm so proud to be a part of this show and, and to pay homage to your great friend. And it's, it's weird because there's so many tentacles to all of this. I think sometimes we fans just think it's, you know, it happens when we turn the TV on and then when we turn the TV off, it's over. Uh, but of course I'm friends with your wife, Stephanie on Facebook. And when all this happened, she posted a lot of family candid photos through the years of you guys and the kids and, and Pat and Louie. And for the first time I texted you a couple of days ago and said, I just watched Pat's hall of fame speech for the very first time. I never saw it. And obviously the company was in a different place back then, but to just see Pat be so proud to receive that award. And you could see the affection he had for Vince when he thanked him, not only for what he had done for wrestling. And he said, in whatever year it was in the mid nineties, can you imagine wrestling being any bigger than this? But he's going to find a way and thank you for that. But mostly thank you for being my friend and you see the smile come across Vince's face and you just know, I think that's Vince's mom seated to his left. This is a family thing and it's so wild to see that. And then at the end, again, this is the mid nineties, a different time. He said, I'm going to do this for the very first time. I want to thank a very special guy in my life, a very dear friend and a companion. And he thanked Louie and said he was going to share this award with him. What a fucking touching moment, man, because you know, this sounds silly now in the context of 2020, but back then that was a big deal. And he was such an innovator and a trailblazer and so brave and so such a creative genius and so giving and yeah, it's, it's immeasurable. The impact he's had, not only on the WWF and not only professional wrestling, but the world people, and we lost a great one and there's no way that we can do a show like this and really tell that story in a couple hours. So we're going to do another deep dive on, on Pat some other time. As I said, I've got 46 pages of notes. I'm rip roaring, ready to go, but Bruce, I just wanted today you know, give you a chance to not talk about what he did, but to talk about how he made you feel, because that's really the memory from the people who knew him the most. It's not the inventor of the Royal rumble. It's not the first intercontinental champion. It's, you know, hanging a noose with Hulk Hogan and peeing all around the car and gimmicking up the steak sauce and then taking the time with a, a young, brash, cocky, 
thinks he's got life figured out office guy and saying, Hey, now let me teach you about life. He was all of that to everyone and to hear it from your perspective. I don't think we could have done him any more justice today. So thank you for being open and honest and vulnerable and real. And Pat Patterson will be sorely missed by a lot of people. He will. And thank you all for listening and giving a shit enough to listen. Pat is, is the guy that so many ways just made it all happen. And for me personally, kept my happy ass together and, uh, Godspeed and I'd love you, Pat. And, uh, you are missed. We'll be back next week with another episode of something to wrestle. He's at Bruce Pritchard. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And none of that matters. Pat Patterson was 79. Yeah, fuck. I I need to get that shit out. (laughs) I am pretty good. (laughs) Oh, fuck me, man. I'm fucked up week. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.